Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence, learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today has been named one of the world's 50 most talented social innovators and awarded the prestigious Peabody Award, media equivalent of a Pulitzer, among 112 other awards. Overcoming obstacles, including death threats, he has been credited with saving or influencing millions of lives. In 1995, he founded Chocolate Moose Media to create human-centered mass communications. Over 1 billion people in 198 countries have seen versions of his work in over 400 languages. A global leader in using animation for social change, he's created, often on a volunteer basis, 4,300 behavior change animations on topics from human rights, disease prevention and health, to refugees, violence reduction, and nature. Among others, Nobel laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu strongly and publicly supports his work. And he's graciously agreed to mentor little old me to make the most of Say It Skillfully and help people all around the world be who they are and say what needs to be said. I'm blown away by my new friend, Verdos Karas. Verdos, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Molly. Ah, the treat is all mine, my friend. And you are just a poster child for one human being making a difference for the world. I am very eager for listeners to learn of your work, uh, driven by creativity and impact. First, though, I appreciate hearing where your passion is rooted. So please, share key parts of your own life journey to becoming who you are. Well, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Um, well, I think it all starts uh, as with any human being with your early socialization. You are, I think, a creature of your childhood in many respects. And uh, it certainly, I think, uh, started with me. I often uh, tell the story about my mother, who was national head of a non-governmental organization in India. She was a British-trained lawyer. Uh, and she took me to meet Mother Teresa quite often when I was about eight years old. I was born and brought up in Calcutta. Uh, and uh, Mother Teresa was then unknown outside uh, of our local uh, community in Calcutta. But I think that seeing Mother Teresa working on behalf of the poorest of the poor in India had a profound impact on me. And looking back, I think it showed me for the first time the benefit of working outside of one's comfort zone for the benefit of others. I do think that uh, there were other aspects of my childhood that brought me to the present place I'm in. Uh, for example, I grew up in a fairly international milieu. Uh, the people, I lived in a small apartment uh, block. Uh, there were uh, a few apartments in the building. Right above me was uh, the Czech uh, Consul General, uh, and right below me, was the head of KLM, the Royal Dutch Airlines. 
And so I grew up with international people surrounding me as my friends. Uh, and my family was also very international at that time. I had an uncle who was a, an ambassador and so on. So uh, I, I've always believed in uh, international work. I've always, when I was a, very young, I knew that I wanted to work in some way across uh, boundaries and across barriers that separate us as human beings. I then uh, went from Calcutta when I was about 11 years old. I moved to Bombay, and I'm using the uh, terms uh, of these cities, the names of these cities as they were when I was there. Uh, and in Bombay, my best friend and I started a school in a slum where we taught for many years. Uh, every Saturday morning, we taught uh, whatever we were learning in our very elite high school. I went to a high school that is uh, regarded as one of the best in India, if not the best. And, uh, and so I think that I can draw a straight line from growing up in India. I left when I was 17 years old, but from growing up in India, uh, the poverty and the social problems that I watched, uh, I wasn't part of them. I was uh, certainly in an elite family, but I saw them, uh, you know, in Calcutta, for example, literally walking over people who were sleeping in the streets or uh, walking in, in waist-high uh, floodwaters uh, during the monsoons to school. I saw many of the social problems that exist uh, and that impacted me. And I do believe that I can draw a straight line from my early socialization in India to what I do today. So, Ferdos, your parents' uh, influence, uh, siblings, any siblings, talk a little bit about the family dynamics, expectations uh, that they may or may not have set for you. Well, uh, my mother was a very educated, pioneering uh, woman. She uh, got her law degree during World War II. She worked for uh, the BBC in London during World War II. And I think she had, in some respects, a greater influence on me than my father. My father, actually, when I went to university in Pennsylvania uh, at Hill College, uh, insisted that I become an accountant. I had uh, absolutely no interest in uh, becoming an accountant. My brother became an accountant, but I had no interest in becoming an accountant. And uh, even I did have to start, you know, uh, accountancy, and I dumped it after uh, one semester. I think that parents, especially in those days, had an expectation that, you know, you could only be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, an accountant, and everything else was uh, irrelevant and uh, didn't give you the basis of a good uh, income for the future. Uh, I obviously profoundly disagree with that. I've always disagreed with that. Uh, and I do think that, um, that people who work in creativity or in other areas of uh, human endeavor uh, as likely to succeed as uh, becoming an accountant or an engineer or a doctor. I think that uh, I probably uh, went in a completely different path that my uh, parents uh, expected me to take uh, because I don't think they 
they understood uh, who I was uh, and my uh, thinking. I have uh, never been really motivated by money, uh, which is very odd, uh, both uh, from an Indian standpoint uh, and generally, uh, you know, many of my friends are very wealthy, much wealthier than I am. Uh, including many members of my extended family. I've never been that that, uh, motivated by money. I have been much more motivated by impact. I do think that if we, you know, when when we come to the end of our life and we want to look back on our life, I want to simply think that I made the best of my capacity uh, to to make an impact, to do something that leaves an imprint that says to people, uh, you know, in the future, that I uh, have um, uh, made some difference to some people. I have always believed that our shared commonalities as human beings affirm that we will not tolerate mistreatment or injustice, and that if we can save the life of a person or a child, we should. If we have the ability to lift somebody out of the crisis that they're in, that is our duty, and that if we have the talent to affect change for the better, we must use it. Well, those are wonderful beliefs, and I... You know, since your father wanted you to be an accountant, your mother didn't nurture that. Um, I am wondering, was that, did other influence, your mother Teresa was just kind of the the landing for that and you never looked back? Because I could imagine, you know, as a young person, that's not that easy to follow. I guess, you know, I'm kind of wondering, were you ever tempted not to follow that? Or you're just like, this is, I'm going this way. I know I'm going this way. Uh, pretty much uh, all my life I knew I was going this way. My uh, friends will tell you uh, to India that I was quite determined to work uh, some way internationally. I told uh, my friends, you know, I'm going to see a hundred countries in my life. Uh, actually, have already visited 146 of them. Uh, and I still have, uh, I hope, uh, some life left in me in the, in the future. But I do think that I was pretty determined to uh, go on a path that I was going to determine for myself, that I was not going to go with the flow. I was not going to allow anybody else to determine uh, who I was going to be. I was not going to allow anybody else to judge uh, what I was going to achieve in life and how those judgments uh, were going to be quantified, uh, especially uh, with, for example, financial success. Uh, my attitude is, is completely different. Uh, my attitude isn't, I, I don't see these kinds of things. I mean, if you, if you look at, if you ask young people today and you ask them, who are the leaders of the world? Who are the people that you look up to? Who impresses you? Who motivates you? A lot of Asians will tell you they're the billionaires of the world. A lot of other people might say, well, they're celebrities or they're political leaders of the world. These are quantifiable uh, methods of achieving success. I understand that. I don't degrade them. I mean, if you're going to make money, yes, make you know as much as you want to. 
or you can. Uh, that's a that's a quantifiable way of looking at success, but it's not the path that I would look at. Uh, I if my kids came to me, my children came to me and said, you know, I uh, and and I have two children, one of whom is uh, doing her PhD in Toronto uh, on uh, as a research scientist to be uh, a scientist on bio and molecular medicine, and the other one works in international trade for the government of Canada. I do think that uh, the measures of success uh, that they will have, I think, at the end of their lives will be more aligned to my thinking in the sense that uh, I don't expect either of them to become uh, tremendously uh, financially successful or uh, to become celebrities or anything like that. Uh, you know, uh, young people nowadays, you know, who's a celebrity to them? The person with the highest number of viewers on YouTube or uh, influencers uh, on Instagram, uh, things like that. None of those are measures of success for me. Well, it's gratifying to know your your children are pursuing paths that they're they feel of high impact, and um, and that's no small feat. Vernos, talk about what uh, led to leaving India and then transition to uh, your next stop? Well, uh, I left India after high school. I finished high school at the age of 17 uh, at the Cathedral and John Connor School, which, is, which gave me an absolutely fabulous education, I must say. I am, uh, I've always uh, attributed uh, some of my uh, success uh, in having an impact to that school and the broad education that I got there. Um, I do think that uh, I left India with the impression that I would never go back uh, to live permanently, and in fact, I didn't. Uh, in those days, India was a much more closed and insular society than it is today. There was a great deal of nationalism. There was a great deal of looking inward uh, and, and thinking that India can do it all alone by itself, and in fact, not only really could do it all alone, but should do it all alone, uh, and that uh, we would have very little interaction with the outside world. I had a great curiosity of the outside world uh, and, uh, and didn't want to stay in India. Uh, and I do realize that uh, India has changed. Uh, India has become a quite a different uh, place than it was then. And of course, with the advent of uh, modern communications, uh, a lot of the world has become a much smaller place. Uh, but I do think that uh, I had no intention of going back. So I went to Pennsylvania um, as a Rotary Exchange student at, at high school, which was the method I used. I had uh, to get out of India, I was the first Rotary Exchange student from the Rotary Club of Bombay to go out of India, and I went to Pennsylvania. But after that, I did a four-year degree in three years in Western Pennsylvania in a small college called Peel College. Uh, and I started doing my research into human rights at Peel College, which continues to this day. Uh, and then... From Peel, I came to Carleton University in Canada, and I wrote my master's thesis on a draft international convention against the use of torture 
in those days, there wasn't such a convention. Subsequently, about eight or nine years later, after I wrote uh, the draft convention in, as my thesis, uh, the UN did adopt a convention. And today there is a convention and therefore there is a standard uh, to which uh, governments uh, can be held. Uh, and people know they have a right not to be tortured. But, you know, my, my idea of uh, doing research into, into human rights was to establish in my brain at least the notion that people everywhere matter, uh, that no matter where you are, you can expect assistance uh, if you are mistreated. And I think that that idea of the commonality of human beings, that we share values in common, is something that I've had for many, many years and absolutely carries me through to this day. It is the fundamental basis of my work today. Uh, this notion that, you know, we have huge numbers of differences, uh, but ultimately that we are one human family and that we operate as human beings and that we have more commonalities uh, than we have differences. Uh, I love it. People everywhere matter. I love it. Um, the, you know, this is... It's a segue. You've you and we'll, we will talk about some of the different topics you've you've dove into, and it's some as some of it. I was listening. It's just hard to listen to, you know, just to know how horribly people have are being treated and emotionally. You know, for me, it's kind of tough. I have to be honest. So I'm just wondering, how do you deal with that? Where you're you're very empathetic at the same time, it doesn't drag you down. Hurdles. It, you know, it, it's that's not easy. Good. Really good question, because people have always asked me, you know, just going back to what I said earlier, when I wrote my master's thesis on a draft convention against torture, I actually had to research methods of torture. Uh, I became quite the expert in, in uh, methodologies, of uh, different methodologies used by different countries uh, in torturing people, which is a very hard thing to become an expert in. Uh, but uh, I needed to understand them to make the definition broad enough to encompass all the different methods that countries were using. I am fundamentally a very optimistic person, even though I deal in my current work on, on not just torture, but on things like sexual violence uh, across uh, countries uh, and so on, rape and things like that. Uh, I am very uh, optimistic about the world. I, even with COVID-19, if I could come to the present for a moment, uh, I do think that COVID-19 has proven to the world the thesis that many of us have had uh, for a long time, and that is the world is interconnected. Uh, every person on this planet, no matter what your nationality is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what language you speak, no matter where you're located, has been impacted by COVID-19. And so it has shown, perhaps it's not happened since, let's say, World War II, but it has shown that what starts in one little country or one big country, in this case in China, can have a huge impact around the world to every person on the planet. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that fundamental understanding is what we will take as a, as a 
advantage coming out of COVID, the era of COVID-19. I think that it has had several other positive impacts, the acceleration towards science, the digitization of the world, uh, economy, and so on. So I do think that it has had several impacts. And most people are despairing over COVID-19, and I'm looking at it from the long-term point of view, and I think that the world will come out better and stronger because I think there will be much more increase in uh, international cooperation of various kinds and a much greater understanding uh, of ourselves as being a human family on this fragile planet. Ah, you're here, 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 here. Um, so take us, so the, 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 the thesis you wrote, um, then what did you do? And, and this creative, I mean, you're highly creative. So let's talk about how that, how you started to weave that in because the animations you have are just so clever. <laughs> ah, thank you. Uh, well, let me go back to, again, my childhood because uh, I did, along with many of my friends, do a lot of acting in, uh, in university and school. Uh, I led the debating club, uh, debating team, uh, which uh, won the championship uh, at Cathedral uh, School in Bombay. And then uh, I continued on uh, doing, a, you know, I wrote a number of plays and things like that and did a lot of acting. And so my creative uh, outlet has always been with me throughout my life. I didn't, i not an animator. It's quite funny to say this because I produce a lot of animation and I direct animation, but I can't animate, I can't draw. Uh, I can't manipulate animation software in a computer. Uh, so my expression of uh, the way I use creativity is uh, quite different. It is uh, a bit like, uh, you know, telling the animators uh, what I want. And, and of course, I do write the scripts a lot uh, and do all the research and then do everything, the voice direction and so on, all the way through to creating the animation and, and giving it ultimately to the international organizations and the uh, NGOs that I work with. I think that uh, we are all creative human beings, uh, that there isn't a person on this planet who isn't a creative human being. Now, creative creativity is not the same as artistry. It doesn't mean that we're all Picassos. It doesn't mean we're all Beethoven uh, and can compose music or Shakespeare and can write plays like he did. It just means that we all have a latent creative ability and that we have to orient our thinking towards creativity. Creativity is something that you can, that you have already uh, and that you can expand your thinking of. And if you think you're not a creativity, a creative person, just think back to your childhood. We all dance, we all sang, we all use our imaginations and therefore we all inherently creative people as human beings. And just some of us are more creative than others, and some of us continue to expand uh, the use of our creativity throughout their lives uh, more than others, that's all. But I do think that we're all very creative people and that we need and should apply our creative thinking both in our personal and our professional lives on a daily basis. 
Yes, I uh, I'm with you, and it's keeping that youth, and it's really I'm really um, moved by your unshakability in some of these basic tenets that really keep you guided and help you stay to your true north, which you know is a, is a huge theme on the show. Um, so when you what, have, what tell you just talk about your first animation. I mean, now I know you can crank them out um, and you have a p- creative process I'd love to hear about, but how did that first getting started uh, doing this uh, work go? Well, the, the first time uh, I uh, did any animation was for UNICEF. Uh, and the animation comes out of my previous work in human rights. Then after uh, TL, just to go back to my history, for five years I was executive director, I was the head of the staff of the United Nations Association in Canada, and then for a brief time I worked for the Minister of uh, what is called Employment and Immigration as a policy advisor on immigration and refugee affairs, and then uh, I was assistant deputy chairman of the Immigration Refugee Board. Uh, And the Refugee Board, of course, listens to uh, people who have come to Canada uh, to uh, claim refugee status uh, because uh, of persecution. And, of course, many of them uh, have uh, been tortured during the persecution. Uh, And then I left uh, the government, and I wanted to start a media company, but a media company with a difference. A media company that didn't just do... uh, normal entertainment programs, but also did social uh, work. And I had the first opportunity when I went to UNICEF because I was a former executive director of the United Nations Association. I had a lot of contacts at at the UN. And I went to UNICEF and they had decided, and I give them credit for starting this, they had decided to take the the Convention on the Rights of Children, which is fairly new at that time, and to animate every single right in it. And the way we did that was that we went to studios around the world uh, and asked them to contribute their animation in any style that they wanted without any words. And ultimately, I think we collectively created over a hundred animated shorts, and I think you can even still see them on the UNICEF website. They call the cartoons for children's rights. But ultimately, two thousand two hundred broadcasters around the world played them. I mean, this is in the days where broadcasters had to receive tapes, physical tapes, uh, to to play something. And 2,200 broadcasters played them, and I think it became the most watched uh, media on human rights probably ever created, or certainly uh, created up to that time. It, it started my thinking. That's what started my thinking. So I always attribute UNICEF to people at UNICEF who had a profound impact uh, on my thinking. And I saw the success of, of that, and then... I, what I did was I, I didn't have enough funds to create animation for social change by myself to be, do it full time. So I did do entertainment projects uh, with a childhood friend uh, that I had uh, co-founded a company with. Uh, his name is Ronnie Skouwala. He's a very well-known uh, Indian entrepreneur. And uh, we joined together. He asked me to join, uh, and we started working it internationally. 
And I so I used my for-profit media work to fund the non-profit animation for social change or, or work I was doing for social change. And then ultimately, and this only happened a few years ago, uh, I was able to completely drop the uh, for-profit work and I now just do animation for social change or other work for social change, you know, live action, documentaries, and so on. Uh, it was a difficult journey over 26 years. It's cost a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, it, it is basically something I tell young people in particular that uh, in order to do this kind of work, you really only need one ingredient. You need passion. You need passion. If you have passion for it, you can do this work. If you don't have passion for it, and if I didn't have passion for it, I would have given up a long time ago because it is not something that's going to even give you enough money to feed yourself, let alone become rich. So uh, I do think that um, the, the origins of this, the concept of using animation for cho social change rests uh, at UNICEF, uh, which is even today one of the biggest users of what they what we call ICT4D, which is basically creating communications for development. And uh, from UNICEF, uh, I then started doing uh, a lot of different projects. And then a few years later, during the height of the HIV/AIDS crisis, uh, that was particularly. Uh, going around the world, but particularly very prevalent in uh, South Africa. I had gone to South Africa to give a training, a two-day free training to the animation industry and how to produce animations for social change. And there was a, a producer, uh, director, creator in South Africa who had come up with the concept of, uh, of trying to use animation to make a difference uh, using three funny animated condoms. And from that, we created uh, a series called The Three Amigos. Uh, and The Three Amigos really propelled my thinking forward because it became a huge hit around the world. You mentioned the Peabody at the beginning in your introduction. Well, the Peabody was given for The Three Amigos. Uh, the Three Amigos was used in over 150 countries around the world, and it currently exists in 45 languages. So over 80% of the world's population has the capacity, uh, not that they have, but have the capacity to see the, it, uh, the series in their own language. And the Three Amigos, I think, um, allowed me to fine-tune in many ways using animation for social change in the production of it, in the, in the approach that we use, which is humor to make a point in why we were using animation, in trying to give people a wide variety. The Three Amigos had 20 animated spots, and I never expected any broadcaster to play all 20. The most I ever heard any broadcaster play was Mozambique television, which played 11 now to the 20. But the Three Amigos became uh, internationally famous uh, and has been widely credited uh, with uh, assisting, and, and I'm careful in how I word this, assisting in stopping the spread of HIV-AIDS. Uh, and it was incredibly successful in South Africa. The South African Broadcasting Corporation played them up to 20 times a day for two years. And 
and it was very successful there. So I do think that that's how the genesis started. Started with UNICEF and then really took off with the Three Amigos in, in about the years uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, when HIV was rampant uh, throughout the world. And at that time, it was essentially a death sentence. If you got HIV, they weren't the antiretroviral drugs uh, that keep you uh, alive nowadays. And so uh, a lot of people, over 20 million Africans died of HIV at that time. And, uh, and I think that, that, uh, that the way uh, the Three Amigos was received around the world and the impact that it had certainly crystallized for me uh, the thinking that animation really can make a difference in the world. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow, what an entrepreneurial journey, Ferdos. That's amazing. Um, there's so much learning, you know, obviously you have to dive in. And for the sake of listeners, we can't go through all the topics. But could you go through some of the the things that you've animated on it and some of the learnings? And I just want people to appreciate and, and not, you know, to have people feeling sorry, but just to be educated on some of the things that have been going on that people deal with, maybe some of the things that were surprising or shocking to you, just to help us gain a sense of, um, of things that are still happening in our world. Well, let me go through some of the groupings of the, of the series that I've done and the topics that I've influenced, and then I'll come to the present time and what I'm doing at the moment. So uh, if, you, if you look at the topics, since I mentioned already HIV-AIDS, uh, there have been many topics that I've dealt with on, HIV, on uh, disease prevention. Uh, it has certainly been one of the themes uh, of my work. So on health, I worked on very recently on COVID-19, understanding and prevention, on the stigma felt by COVID-19 healthcare workers. I worked extensively and very intensively uh, on Ebola uh, about four or five years ago, first in West Africa in the outbreak that happened there, and then in uh, in the Congo uh, DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, more recently uh, on malaria prevention, on polio eradication, uh, on type 1 diabetes, on dementia, on the vitamin A deficiency, uh, generally promoting immunizations and vaccinations on the dangers of asbestos, on migraine disease, on obesity in children, uh, and on Zika prevention. That's just on health. Then I've worked a lot, obviously, on human rights issues, on governance, on universal values. Uh, I I did even a... Uh, a series that I created for the Middle East for the Al Jazeera Children's Channel on universal values and values like gender equality between boys and girls and on values like accepting outsiders. And you can understand within the context of the Middle East, this could have been a minefield uh, where we were beaming directly into millions of households, over 50 million households in Arabic on universal values like uh, like gender equality between boys and girls, but we didn't create a, a storm. Uh, then I worked in the environment. I worked a lot on education, on early childhood and middle 
children's education, on street children, on children at risk. Uh, I've worked a lot on preserving culture. Uh, for example, I directed uh, and executive produced Africa's first uh, animated series, which is uh, actually based on African folk, folk tales. And then finally, I've worked a lot on violence, uh, sexual violence, sexual abuse, using culture as a justification for violence, the perceived right to commit violence within families, uh, gender-related violence, attitudes towards rape victims. And more recently in the United States, I even created a video on how to interact with police in the United States. Right now, I'm working with the University of Ottawa on creating a national uh, program of four animations uh, on, it's called Becoming Anti-Racist, and it's uh, all, to get a dialogue going. So basically I create two kinds of uh, videos. The first one is direct, uh, what is called behavior change communications, where you're getting, trying to get the viewer, uh, you're talking directly to the viewer to try and get them to change their behavior. And the second one I term a catalyst video. And the catalyst video is where, for example, I'm giving it to high school students across Canada uh, to get a discussion going about a topic, in this particular case, uh, about racism. And it is the discussion that will create the behavior change, not the video directly, but uh, the discussion that follows from the video. We did this very successfully, this kind of approach, the second approach, a catalyst approach, for example, in dealing with, uh, with uh, rape, uh, where I had actually started with a video in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, DRC, where uh, they have the highest uh, per capita rate of uh, rape in the world, apparently. Uh, some women took it into neighboring countries and used it as a discussion group uh, for discussions to talk about rape. And then some women shot it over to the northern part of Nigeria where a murderous organization called Boko Haram ha has been kidnapping uh, and raping children. And they took it into classrooms and started using the video uh, as a discussion tool uh, to get young girls uh, to talk about rape. And so... Um, the videos that I produce, the work that I produce, have a, have a kind of myriad ways. Uh, you know, people often ask me, uh, describe the project. Uh, there isn't one way, even a particular project, a particular video has been, you know, is used in so many multitude different ways by different organizations and and in different countries and in different languages, uh, that uh, there's no way for me to characterize uh, a kind of normal or typical uh, project. They're all extremely diff uh, different. My work currently exists in 435 language versions. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean languages, I'm careful to say language versions because, you know, there are about 50 or 60 versions of English, for example, uh, all with different accents and in some cases even different words on the same project. Uh, but uh, it exists in 435 language versions. So it is extremely uh, multilingual and I'm very careful about that so that when, for example, you know, we create something, uh, for example, on Ebola, 
in West Africa, which I worked on about four or five years ago, uh, and it, it did have a considerable impact, and I'm not just saying that myself. Uh, that's what I heard uh, at the UN conference on uh, lessons learned from the Ebola crisis in West Africa. And I think that, you know, uh, I, for example, that Ebola video we created in 17 languages of uh, the three countries and four countries in West Africa that had the Ebola crisis a few years ago. Uh, nobody created media in 17 languages uh, uh, during the Ebola crisis. Uh, in fact, for the most part, the national community just created uh, pamphlets and brochures, even though the literacy rate is very low in the villages in West Africa. So uh, I have always been very careful to localize uh, the programs as much as possible, to localize the animations, to increase the impact that it would have, to make sure that they resonate uh, with people uh, locally. Uh, and that is very difficult to do. I mean, it is, it is, it is much easier to make something for one particular country uh, than it is to make something across countries. And even within countries, the greatest difficulty I have is overcoming the many barriers that we have as human beings to communications. And I can go into those if you're interested. Uh, but essentially, we all have different barriers and language is just one of them where we all speak different languages and ethnicities and geographies and boundaries and, you know, what our political status is, what our economic status is, what our ethnicity is, how much nationalism plays uh, to us, uh, what our educational level is, and so on and so on and so on. So we, ha we all are unique human beings, uh, mentally as physically. Uh, you know, people often say that uh, we're physically different because we all have different fingerprints. Well, I think we're also all mentally different. We see the world completely from a unique perspective. There is no other person who sees the world uh, the way we do, uh, each of us does. Uh, and so I have to get around all these barriers when communicating with people, and that is the most difficult thing uh, I find to do. Wow. <laughs> I, I am so moved by how you're empowering people in the farthest reaches the just the ultimate and translator and and to, to 17 West African languages you've got to be feet on the street way down on the ground to get to the right people who can speak to it the right way so that their peers can understand it um, that's amazing the bear you you already named all these barriers to communications and I never thought about it this way the language the ethnicity the economic status the nationalistic level the education level how we see the world differently Anything else there that you'd love to share with listeners to consider that this could be a barrier to com communications that may, they may not have considered? Well, you know, I think that in the recent past, uh, we have had uh, an emphasis on what divides us as human beings. And we have, you know, historians will tell you that uh, probably in the future, that this is a period where um, cultural differences, that we had cultural wars in the world, where we had great divisions in religion uh, and a lot of conflict uh, coming out of it, 
we have had great uh, nationalism, a rise up of nationalism. Uh, we have had political leaders in so many countries that exploit differences uh, in, in trying to gain power or in keeping power. Uh, we have had political leadership, uh, I think, over the last uh, several years. Uh, and I'm not pointing to any particular country. I think this has happened in many different countries where uh, populist uh, political leaders have uh, surfaced. And when people have actually voted for these popular uh, populist uh, leaders, but where the leaders have found power in dividing people instead of uh, bringing people together. So yes. it's, it's ironic because at the same time, modern communications has brought the world together. I mean, in the past, you know, if there was a human rights abuse in, I don't know, Myanmar, uh, I would not have had the ability to see it in real time if I wanted to, to interact, uh, to do something about it on an almost instant basis. The moment it happens, even though it's happening halfway around the world from where I am, uh, that ability to, to interact with each other is a huge new era that we live in. We live in a new era of instant two-way modern communications. And, uh, and that's very different. I think that, that, that we have still not understood the implications and the changes that that will bring about uh, to our world uh, in the future. So that is an ironic that on the one hand, we have nationalism growing and populism and divisions uh, growing. And on the other hand, we have the, all these interactions going on amongst human beings that were never possible until a few years ago uh, that are now possible. So there are two kind of divergent trends that are happening in the world at the moment. And I think that we are at the crossroads. We need to understand uh, the divisions that happen, why they happen. We need to, we need to vote out populist uh, leaders. We need to vote out divisive leaders. Uh, and we need, to, we need to understand, as I said, that COVID and others have, have pointed out to us, <laughs> whether we want to acknowledge it or not, the need for international cooperation, uh, the need for understanding that uh, we're all on this planet together and that there are many issues, the climate change being an example, where uh, no one particular government, no one country no one person is going to be able to surmount it. It's going to take a huge international concerted effort as a human species to get over some of these problems. Well, single-handedly, Ferdos, you are leading the way with that. So this is so inspiring. And I hope folks are realizing the difference that uh, each of us really can make. Uh, your, I, we have so much to cover. Your current work, I'd, lo I'd love you to give uh, re listeners a chance to understand what you're working on right now. Well, what I'm working on right now is, as I said, I'm making uh, four videos for the University of Ottawa on anti-racism, on becoming racist for high school students uh, across Canada in English and French. I'm also working uh, with an organization uh, based in the U.S. Uh, on uh, continuing work in the Congo and the DRC where I've worked quite often. And this time, 
we're working on hypertension uh, in uh, pregnant women. Uh, and I'm also doing some other work for the U.S. Uh, on uh, COVID-19 uh, because there's still a long way to go on COVID-19 in terms of getting uh, people vaccinated. There's a lot of resistance, obviously, to vaccinations, even at this late stage, and even understanding the impact that uh, getting COVID-19 might have. So um, there's, a, there's a lot of work that, that I continue to use, and I continue to use, uh, continue to use animation because animation gives me a large number of advantages. Animation gives you what is called a suspension of your disbelief system. You know that what you're seeing is not real, and therefore I can get you to be uh, more accepting of the message. If you go back, for example, to HIV-AIDS, where we used three funny animated condoms, well, before that came along, before our program came along, there were uh, people who tried to use real condoms or bananas or whatever, condoms or bananas and things like that. Uh, and, and people objected to them and they had to be taken off uh, the air in many countries. So animation allows me to communicate because it, it gives the viewer a suspension of their disbelief system. Animation also makes it easy for me to reach virtually any audience. I can create universal characters. You ask me what I'm doing right now. I'm working, for example, with the World Bank on creating one of my programs called No Excuses, which I had done on domestic and sexual violence into Somali for them, versioning it into Somali. Uh, so they can put it into their curriculum and use it in Somalia. All those characters in the No Excuses campaign are blue. Why are they blue? Because no real person is blue, and therefore I can create universal characters who don't have hair uh, and their skin color is blue. And so they can speak any language. The audience is going to be accepting. So you can have global acceptance with animation, and it's easy to sync with other languages. And it allows for innovation. I mean, ultimately, this is a creative process. And uh, as you know, I think creativity is the key to a remarkable life. And the creativity is what all of us need to employ and all of us need to expand our creative thinking. Uh, whether It doesn't mean we all have to become Picasso. It just simply means uh, that in our lives, whether professionally or personally, we apply uh, creative thinking, we become broader-minded thinkers, uh, and I think that it helps us succeed as we go through uh, the journey called life. Oh, my gosh. I love it. I love it. Well, you mentioned your book. So you have the book, um, the website. So Chocolate Moose Media is the name of your company. A quick segue, how did you, in a chocolate moose, folks, M-O-O-S-E, moose, not the one that the, the one that you might That's have right. for dessert. How did you pick the name for those? <laughs> well, it was just, it's just a funny name. Uh, you know, being an animation company, kind of a two-series name. I love chocolate and I'm Canadian, so the moose is the Canadian part. Uh, and I just you uh, thought it was a kind of funny play on names. Uh, I used to actually live in Switzerland. I used to joke with people that the chocolate is the Swiss part and the moose is the Canadian part, but I'm now back in Canada. Um, I, you know, I think that we, 
we all need to laugh a little bit more. We all need to uh, we all need to uh, lighten up, especially in the era of COVID and all the troubles that we've been through over the last uh, year and a half, uh, two years. And I think that um, uh, using humor has always served me well. All, almost all my work is humorous. I use humor to bring the audience to the serious point I want to make at the end of the spot. I don't believe you can impose a message on somebody. I think that they have to accept the message, internalize it, and change, come to their own conclusion to change their behavior. You can't impose it. And humor is a great tool to, to get people to internalize uh, messaging. And so I use humor throughout my life, uh, just even when I'm talking, uh, even when I'm just having casual conversations. Uh, I'm always using humor, and I, I encourage people to use humor a lot. Oh, I love it. I love this notion of uh, helping people to accept it and come to their own conclusion. That is really powerful. Okay, as we wrap here, I, um, I'm, just, I'm just blown away by you, as I said. Um, you've shared a lot, and I'm just wondering, Ferdos, what was it like for you to share your journey, what you're doing with listeners today? Oh, I, I'm very appreciative, Molly, of the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, uh, what I do is fairly unique. Uh, I don't know how many other people work full-time in creating animation for social change, especially as an individual, uh, and get the work out. And by the way, I should mention that all my work is available, almost all my work is available on my Vimeo channel for free. Uh, I never charge anybody. You can use it, you can download it, uh, and use it in any way without any restrictions. Um, I do hope that your listeners took out of this uh, the fact that, you know, if you have passion and you want to make a, want to make a difference in the world, no matter, it doesn't have to be on a global basis. I mean, when I, may, when I say make a difference, it could just be, you know, locally with your own family or with your own friends or within your own community or within your own country. I do think that uh, we all have that ability. You simply need to orient your thinking towards it. You simply need to say to yourself, I'm going to go for it. And don't let anybody stop you. Uh, I think that if you have passion, you will succeed and uh, you will have a much better life. As I said, when you, when you are like me, when you're, uh, you know, at my age, I'm now 65, and when you want to look back on your life, I don't think the, you know, amount of quachas you have in your bank account is going to make any difference. I think the way you led your life uh, uh, the the impact that you have, the ability that you had to be true to your own values is what is going to matter. Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Ferdos, for saving, for influencing millions of lives, for being remarkably cross-cultural and leading the way to make the world a better place. I appreciate you, and I thank you for being part of the solution. Um, oh, my goodness. My thought for the week, inspired by Ferdos, care enough to make a difference. Go for it, please. 
And that's a wrap. My thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Ferdos' voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 